0: Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome
1: back to another episode of F-P-O-G, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to review 2023. We're going to break down uh, how did markets performed or how have they performed up to this point? What were our biggest surprises for the year? And also, what were some of the worst takes that didn't really age well? And then we're going to wrap it up with talking about, okay, why are we optimistic for next year? But Justin, I do think it's interesting to call out. Last time we were recording this, last year, last December, it was dreary and I had negative temperatures in the forecast and we were reporting on the S&P and the sixty forty portfolio having its worst return period in the last 50 years. And today it's sunny, it's mid-40s in the middle of December, and we're coming to report some, some better news, a little, a little more optimistic scene this year.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, it was 70 degrees here yesterday for us. And you're right, a lot better return figures, a uh, little bit more normal return figures in 2023. Fixed income did not have its worst year in you know two or three generations. And so I think that's a good way to put it, a little bit more rosy uh, review for 2023.
1: Yeah. So before I jump into the numbers, it is worth calling out. There is an inter- there's internal turmoil related to when to drop this episode. So we are recording this in mid-December. And so th- so all the numbers we're going to go through are through the end of November. And so there's some data that's going to be excluded from this. So we have, the, we have the tough dilemma of, do we publish this right at the end of the year when everybody's thinking about year-end stuff with essentially incomplete data for the year? Or do we wait till the new year and then record and then have the podcast come out two weeks later? And at that point, you have the year-end review coming out in 2024, when people are already looking ahead till the next decade or the, the next year. So it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a tough spot to be in. So that's a, an interesting caveat that, that I will say. And we're open to feedback. If you, know, if you as the listener have a, have a strong feeling either way, we'd love to hear it. That's right. So awesome. With that, let's, uh, let's just jump in. So 2023 uh, through the end of November. S&P is up about 20.8%, which is really good. Not at all-time highs. NASDAQ hit all-time highs earlier this month in December, but again, most of this data, and we'll, we'll have a lot of, this is a data-heavy episode, so a lot of this will be in the show notes. But So the all-cap world XUS up about 10.6%. EFI, so developed markets, is up about 128 Europe, ex-UK, up about 16.7%. And emerging markets, 6.1%. So the U.S. is still uh, the best game in town, but positive equity returns across uh, across all geographies. Justin, anything that sticks out about uh, to you about those return numbers? It is interesting to take this
2: year compared to last year. So large U.S. companies have done extraordinarily well. Uh, Also a good time to repeat the disclosure Jared made a couple minutes ago. This only goes to the end of November. So small cap uh, value companies have had a a really solid December, which helps close the gap a little bit. But what happened in 2022? Tech companies just got torched. Uh, Their market crash was considerably worse than the overall market. And value companies did really well in 2022. They kind of were the anchor that that held their value during the storm. And so this year, it has been a pretty widespread. We've seen U.S. large caps do extraordinarily well and start to earn back some of the enormous losses they saw last year. So I think that's what sticks out to me. What got hit hardest in 22 has also recovered better than anything else in 2023.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the big thing. It's like, it was FANG, but now it's the Magnificent Seven, right? The big storyline is the biggest, largest of the S&P companies did it, drove a disproportionate amount of the returns. And so year to date, Tesla's up about 100%. Amazon's up 73%, Alphabet's up 47%, Meta's up 174 Microsoft is up 52, Apple's up 50, and NVIDIA up 224%. So large US companies are a disproportionate amount of the game, but there's an important lesson in here. So I list those returns and those sound excellent and you've seen them in the news, but the two-year return for these companies is a very different story, right? Volatility matters substantially, right? If you are down 100% and then you rebound 100%, you have less money than you started with. Right, if if you have a dollar and you, you, it prices drop fifty percent, and then they increase fifty percent, you end up with seventy five cents. Right, so volatility hammers you in both ways. So the two year numbers look a little bit different. Tesla still down thirty percent over a two year period. Oh my! Amazon still down twelve percent. Alphabet still down ten percent. And of course, there's a few companies that have crushed it. Nvidia is up substantially, but. The fact that four of those companies on a, on a two-year return time frame are actually still down tells you just how hard investing is, right? It's easy to look at those best performing companies over this year and just say, man, I should have owned those for longer. But in 2022, you experienced some face ripping, you know, close to probably 50% drawdowns in some of these companies when, when, there were a lot, when there was a lot of tech layoffs and they were kind of the first part of the... Economy slash job market to roll over was really, really uh, high paying tech jobs and, and all those companies were tightening the belt, if you will, and taking orders from Wall Street that hey, we're gonna we're gonna prioritize profit, not just growing our revenue.
2: Jared, some of those one year two year numbers are pretty amazing. Um, so you're talking about some companies have been up more than fifty percent this year, but they're still negative on a two year basis. Uh, it reminds me of that age old principle of. Most investors think that compounding at 8% per year is this normal, serene, smooth path where you make 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%. 8%, When in reality, the way you make 8% a year is you make 21% and then you lose 6% and then you gain 12% and then you lose 32% and then you gain 17%. And so I think it really just reminds me that investing is hard. And that if you want to compound your wealth and own great companies of the world, this is not
1: a smooth treasury bill ride. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Volatility, it's not a feature. It's not a bug, it's a feature, right? As Morgan Housel says. So it's kind of the price of admission and why you expect to to have better risk adjusted returns than cash, right? Because the risk and the price volatility is higher. So, so returns for the equity markets, much uh, much rosier. So we'll quickly just roll through this guide to the markets. Um, year-to-date, large value is up about 5.6%. Compare that to large growth, it's up 36.6%. And a blend is kind of somewhere in between those. Uh, so I'll kind of skip over the blend. But for mid-cap companies, value up about 4.6% year-to-date. Uh, growth is up about 17%. And for small-cap companies, year-to-date uh, is up about 2% versus growth companies about 6 So that's, you know, I know we're gonna talk about surprises later, but one of my surprises being a factor-based investor that believes in small and value and profitability is just seeing these large growth companies continuing to to dominate. I've gotta say I'm surprised and a, and a little bit tired, but but I still still believe in factors and still think the go forward returns are really compelling and the economic intuition is is there, but it is interesting to see, especially in a higher rate environment when a lot of the narrative was software companies need zero interest rates to survive. And a lot of the reason they had it is because capital was just so cheap from outside investors. But but I think large tech companies confirmed that, hey, we're here and there's a reason we deserve to be here. That makes all the sense in the world.
2: I will give that same caveat that we gave with the, uh, with the group of seven stocks um, that you mentioned. And that caveat being Large growth did a whole lot better than large value, but it also did a whole lot worse in 2022. And so that dynamic of, hey, it was 20, 30% better this year, but it was also 20, 30% worse last year in some cases with, with a few of those styles. So again, investing is hard.
1: Yeah, exhibit, another exhibit of investing being hard. We have this great chart that talks about intra-year declines, right? We're giving these, you these rosy year-to-date performance numbers, but we also endured a 10% drawdown this year. I know we forget about that, but it wasn't just a straight shot up, right? And so, right, like it, it uh, not, just more testament to investment being hard. And sentiment going into this year, I mean, we'll, we're going to talk about sector returns, but then we'll go into sentiment. Like the, the the picture wasn't that rosy for this year. So it is kind of wild to see, hey, both of these things can be true. There could be substantial negative drawdowns intra-year, and you can expect positive equity returns in the market. Now let's talk sector returns. We won't spend too much time here. I do just want to call out a few. So the S&P weight, so the S- energy is about 4% of the S&P, and year to date, it's down about... 1.3%. Compare that to consumer discretionary uh, is at about 10.7%. And that year-to-date return is 34%. And then to compare that to tech, the S&P weight is 29%. And the year-to-date return of tech is 52%, right? And so the S&P... Even a passive index doesn't have equal weightings to all of the sectors. And so as a podcast that caters to a lot of energy professionals. You know, we don't think the returns have been great for energy, but we, you know, and we've talked about in prior podcasts, we are long-term, very bullish, but the dispersion of, this is just a great example to highlight, the dispersion of returns across industry is really high. So even if you say, hey, I own... The, the great conclusion here is, you know, owning a, an S and P company is not the same as owning the S and P, right? We'll have we'll have people with concentrated stock in even like an Apple or a Facebook, and if you pick the right sector, you might get bailed out a little bit. But the variance and returns across these sectors can vary widely. And I just wanted to call it energy's uh, return because you know slightly negative, but I mean, especially if you are in the energy business, I think sentiment, especially of people we've talked to, are very optimistic for the next decade in energy right? And the returns don't reflect that. So a lot of times there's, there's a pretty big disconnect between what the market's saying and what reality is or what that means for future prospects. So what, again, you know, this is more of an intellectual exercise versus us saying, hey, change what you're doing in light of this information. This is us just kind of reflecting and checking in on what's going on. But if you have long-term investment commit convictions, one-year investment performance is just noise, but it is, it, is worth, it is interesting talking points. Justin, what would you add there? I just cannot believe that one
2: sector outperformed another sector in the S and P by more than 50% this year. And just like you mentioned, Jared, the one sector that did a lot worse than the other one, it had a pretty good year. You know, there, there wasn't any, there wasn't anything disastrous this year, yet it still did more than 50% worse. Than another sector and so when you think about investing when you think about your portfolio well what you own really does matter and how much you're weighted to different sectors different companies you can have a wildly different portfolio if you're focusing on dividend payers versus the p as a whole or if you're in a you know growth fund compared to more of a a value fund you can have a wildly different experience. And so, you know, there's kind of this growing sentiment that investing's really easy. Just buy an index fund and diversify and stuff like that. And there is truth to that. And, you know, we, we certainly are not against index funds by any means on this podcast, but I just want to highlight that. One sector in the S&P outperformed another sector by more than 50%. Again, investing is hard.
1: Yeah, and even if... Like in a testament to that, I feel like this the name of this year in review just needs to be investing is hard. But if you think about the backdrop of like narrative, like if you think about last year, it was the conflict in Ukraine, right? And this year, it's, and this year, there hasn't like the conflict, it, it's still going on, but it's not pervasive and in the news. um And so it's one of those things where, you know, if if you just had headlines for 2022 and 2023, 2023 had two big super major deals, right? And if you just looked at headlines and had to guess which which investment return was going to be better and which one was positive and which was going to be negative, you might have gotten that wrong. And so, you know, even even if you have the headlines, uh, it's really difficult to disseminate. Hey, how is the market going to react? How much of this is already priced in? What is consensus? It's it's just man, it's it's really hard and really fascinating.
2: It also makes me think there's such a temptation when you look at these return numbers to think that an investment manager should be able to weave in and out what's good and what's bad. And so there's this wrong thought that, well, if I'm paying an investment manager, surely they're going to be able to understand when the market's going to go down, which stocks are going to go up and which which sectors are going to be better or worse. And so, you know, Jared, if you think about the past five years, I guess the I guess the kind of the way that would manifest itself in your fantasy world is maybe if several years ago, you'd be heavy in tech. And then you might go all into oil and gas uh, right after the uh, 2020 crash and watch oil and gas just explode in value. You see oil and gas stock prices 3x in a what a year or two. Um, And then you would know to get out of that and do what? Go right into NVIDIA, basically. And so there's this thought of, well, an investment manager, if I'm paying an investment manager, surely they're going to be able to do that. And I think you know the first message is, no, they can't. Uh, No one can. And you should run from anyone who says they can. But two, I think the big takeaway and the reason I'm diving into this the consequences of being wrong can be huge. So if if it's if you're working with an investment manager that is chasing which sector, which company, which part of the globe is going to take off next, and they're trying to pick and time which sectors are going to run, if they get that wrong, you're you are talking about catastrophic losses and just losing out opportunity cost of being wrongly positioned when something screams. And so, again, just crazy variance, huge, huge numbers and gaps between different companies and different sectors and different geographies over the past few years.
1: Yeah, year-to-date S&P return, you know, over 20%. But eight of the 11 sectors represented in the S&P had returns of less than 10%.
2: Wow, pretty incredible. Um, you're talking about wildly different investment investing experiences based on which sectors you're overweight to
1: that's exactly right but this this segues so nicely into the next point but man investing is so hard like in, it, it's so hard because like knowing the future is it's unknowable right Even with how interdependent we all are and how much information there is available. It's really to develop this false narrative that you think you know, A, what the future is, B, how much of it is priced in, and C, how Wall Street will respond to it. But knowing those three things in confluence is really difficult. This, so Justin, let's transi- transition to like some of our biggest surprises. And this was one of mine, was how bearish everyone was and how wrongly positioned everyone was. Michael Batnick on his podcast, uh, Animal Spears talks about a lot of rallies being a function of positioning, right? If things are like if, if, if everyone's bearish and news comes in bad, but slightly, slightly less, expected, less bad than expected, the market's going to run. And I think that's what happened this year. This great chart by Sam Rowe Ticker basically looked at forecasted real GDP for 2023. And the consensus was of a bunch of economists and a bunch of investment banks. At January 2023, they were estimating real GDP of 0.3%. And the most recent estimate in November was 2.4%. And yes, there is some time to, for that to course correct, but as a percentage of being off, that is substantial, not even in the same universe, but that was consensus opinion across a ton of economists and the smartest investment banks. Everybody thought this year was essentially going to be flat. And that, and that's honestly one of the biggest surprises is how resilient the economy has been.
2: That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense.
1: But, you know, it's one of those things where there was a reason at the time. And I think like, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty. And I think that, you know, for me personally, I I, want to ask you what one of your biggest surprises was, was my, one of my biggest surprises is how resilient the economy was and specifically the housing market. Right. Like if you look at housing data, Existing home sales is down. New builds are up, but my my big thing is pricing hasn't really changed a ton. Um, There hasn't been a crash that kind of people were expecting, and quite frankly, a lot of people in my generation were hoping for, right? Because it it would increase affordability. My 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 biggest surprise was, man, you know, if you told me last year that interest rates uh, on a thirty year were going to get up to seven percent and linger there for a while, and I had to guess what was going to happen to housing prices across the U.S. I would have thought everything would have had it been in correction double digit territory, and that hasn't been the case. Yes, if you look at some geographies and some coastal cities uh, and some places that have high net migration, yes, or some places that had some of the biggest gains in the COVID appreciation. Austin's a great example. So if you look at you know isolated incidents, there's definitely some some double digit drawdowns happening. But if you look on the aggregate, I think housing demand is still pretty strong and prices really haven't moved much I'd say that's kind of like one of my one of my biggest surprises Justin what would you say your biggest surprises from the year
2: yeah you know I think that I am surprised that real estate has held value in spite of mortgage rates getting even worse throughout the year I mean it's it's partially a surprise partially we talked about this in other podcasts earlier this year where you know if if people aren't forced to sell and the economy needs to be really bad for enough people to be forced to sell, then prices are going to hold. And so in that regard, you know, we were kind of right. And that's, that's what's happened. The other thing that it makes me think about Jared is a reminder that the feedback loop is very different in the stock market compared to real estate and even in residential real estate compared to commercial real estate. And so what I mean by that is When a piece of news becomes publicly available, the impact of that news on a particular stock's price is known if the market's open within a few minutes. And so the market takes in new information. There's millions of market participants, and that new information is reflected in the stock price very quickly. But in real estate, we've had a few different things change. So interest rates used to be, you used to be able to get a 30-year mortgage for 2.5%. And then it you know, climbed to about 8% uh, at its worst point. And you would think that that would have this immediate downward plunge that housing prices would crash. But the feedback loop is very, very different. And to fully realize the effects of massive mortgage rate increases, well, that can take years and all of the other variables involved are also going to play a huge role commercial real estate. I do think another factor to bring up for a year end 2023 episode like we're having is commercial real estate has started to really show some cracks. So there's been some viral articles in Q4 of San Francisco and some different East Coast markets selling commercial real estate property for half of what it was purchased in 2018-2019. And so we're already seeing some pretty big changes there. But again, feedback loop, really long. Pandemic happens, work from home explodes. People are in five, seven, 10 year leases. Some of those are finally coming due and turning over. And so, what's the market reaction to those? Well, in some cases, we're just now seeing. And I don't even know if the feedback loop's going to be closed by our 2024 review. Um, so sometimes these markets take years to really show and and, and really see material differences uh, because of some of the changes we've seen.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you could have made a case to be in cash all year, right? You could have looked at the economic forecast for the year. They were abysmal, right? And basically said, hey, 7% interest rates. Oh, and I can get 5% essentially on uh, treasury bills. The risk-free rate has gone up substantially. So these, you know, these, these other assets are less compelling, but it's just a testament to just positioning is, is so, so hard. But Justin, I agree with what you're talking about. I think like now that you're talking about it, like residential real estate succeeded partially because a consumer is resilient. And I think in a great spot, but B like, I don't know what percentage of homes are paid off, but like that was a non-event for them. And, or people that had locked in sub 5% right? It was like the marginal buyer. And, and I think, you know, you're seeing existing home sales fall off a cliff because nobody's selling, right? Nobody's going to se- or not nobody's selling, but there's a severe economic punishment to selling, right? Cause you're going to exchange a sub 5% mortgage for a 7% mortgage. So the affordability math changes in a, in a weird way. So, you know, it is something we'll want to continue to see, but despite all that, man, the fact that home prices even, even, for a year, even this year, kind of just flatlined and we're up a little bit is pretty pretty remarkable.
2: Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. It was so tempting for anyone to take a 5% guaranteed return at the beginning of this year. And even if they were diversified and didn't have a whole lot of tech exposure, they still had a fantastic year in equities. And they made a whole lot more than 5% a year. And so that's, that's a fantastic point. Uh, if you were really tempted by these great cash yields
1: and you went too much in cash, you paid a price for it. Yeah. All right, Justin, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with reasons you're bullish. I, I like to think of us as eternal optimists, right? There's a ton of bad news, but like, to be an equity investor, you have to believe that companies are going to continue to innovate and wake up and try to add value. And make money for their shareholders, and make a product that enhances people's lives, right like that's a, like you gotta believe that and that they're gonna a- allocate capital in a way that's favorable for shareholders so like i almost I would argue that it almost requires a little bit of a eternal optimism to be an investor. So what would you say are reasons you're optimistic looking ahead to twenty twenty
2: four I firmly believe that great companies are gonna wake up. And find ways to add massive value to their customers and their shareholders. And so the opportunity to invest in the greatest companies in the world is is just incredible. And it's probably the the stock market, the fact that you can become a shareholder in any publicly traded company that you want, uh, it's probably the greatest tool that's ever existed to compound wealth. Um, So I'm bullish because I believe great companies are going to find ways to win. And if next year is a massively volatile year, those companies are still, even if their stock price is down 30%, they're still going to wake up the next day, and they're going to find ways to work. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like we say a lot, Jared, we don't have any idea what's going to happen in the next 12, 24 months. But we're pretty excited to own great companies for the next 20, 30 years.
1: Yeah. Your, your answer is really timeless. I feel like every year you could just repeat that and, and get an A+. I think for me, I think a few things, I, I agree with everything that you said, and it's honestly more important than what I'm going to say. But my, my answer is probably going to be a little more entertaining. So I think a few things bode well nicely for the consumer, right, or uh, for the markets. I think one, valuations have come down, right? Things were Things have spent a lot of the past four years above two standard deviations in terms of PDE ratio, right? And so things were really expensive. So The dollar you were paying uh, is what you, for the earnings you were getting was lower than it's been historically. Yes, we're still above average, but that number has come down. And so I think you know lower lower starting cost, if you will, for earnings bodes well for better future returns. I still think they're high. They're high, they're elevated by historical averages. But I do think that that's just going to serve people well. Two, I think that, you know, this market, th- like the consumer is in a really strong shape, right? Like, I, like I'm like i not seeing a ton of like deterioration and, you know, subprime isn't exploding, home activity, existing home sales are down, but still, right, home prices are still there, services and inf- like inflation's coming down, but there's still strong demand for all these things. And I think the consumer is really, uh, really resilient and just continuing to spend. Um, And I think third, man, one of these years I'm going to be right, and XUS and value is going to take off and deliver premiums in line with their historical averages. So if you're a globally diversified, factor-tilted investor, the the dispersion between growth tech stocks in terms of cost, dividend yield, uh, you know, it's a... The U.S. has crushed it, but it's a lot more expensive. And I think there's a lot of values to be had, a lot of bargains, if you will, in the international and U.S. markets. And so I think for all those reasons, like you can't help but be bullish, right? Like like if you think about the tackles that we shed this year, right? Like everyone was so certain we were gonna enter a recession. And the fact that we did it as one will definitely come. They come every few years. But the fact that we had this big headwind and persevered through it and came out on the other side with positive equity returns, and that can't help but get you excited about what's possible uh, when we've even further digested this rate, these rates. And inflation rates have even normalized even more. And now the Fed has signaled that possibly rate cuts might be on the horizon, right? I, I think there's a few key levers that could really make a meaningful difference.
2: Yeah, and I think I would add You know, I was at a Christmas party a few days ago and someone was asking me my thoughts on kind of publicly traded stocks versus private real estate and private equity. There are some pretty big advantages right now and some pretty real difficulties in some of the alternative assets. Um, And you think about a private equity fund that is so much more popular today than it was 12 years ago. There's so many more funds. There's so much more money flowing into private equity. And those funds have to put that capital to work. And they have to buy companies. And it's a whole lot harder to find great value in companies today than it was 12, 14 years ago. Uh, So I think that's kind of another reason to be bullish on public equities. Uh, There's some serious headwinds in alternative assets. And that's kind of an entire can of worms that could be an episode on its own. Uh, but that's kind of another reason why I'm pretty bullish on on equities moving
0: forward.
1: Yeah, and I mean alternatives. A lot of it, like buyout private equity, is a great example of like a lot of these deals are financed with debt. And if the cost of debt goes up, also we should probably have another episode that talks about the most common question we get as an advisor. Because I just picture you at a Christmas party telling somebody that you do wealth management, and then them asking you the first question out of their mouth being which which stock or what do you think about what do you think about this asset class or investment.
2: Yeah. You know, it is funny. Whenever someone asks me what I do, I try to give the shortest answer possible. I pretty much always just say I own an investment firm and then don't say anything else because I almost don't want questions about it. And Jared, I don't know if you feel this way, but I also feel like there's kind of this notion that financial advisors are just very salesy and they're always trying to book an appointment with you and sell you their services. And I just hate that. And I don't want to be that way. So I've almost I've almost overcorrected to a in in a kind of negative way where if someone asks me what I do, I give like a three-word answer and I don't say
1: anything else. I do the same thing and it generally ends up in confusion. It's like, yeah, I do financial planning. It's like, oh, so you help people with budgeting? It's like, no, not exactly. And then I send them the podcast on anti-budgeting. But yeah, I, I do I do get what you're saying, where like it's a profession that's so sales oriented that if you say, hey, I'm a financial advisor, like you, a lot of times you get positioned in a spot where people presume, or you see them, you know, you see their body language change of like, hey, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be sold something right now. I'm just trying to enjoy my evening. So I, I so I do, I do the same thing. But, it, you know, I love what we do. It was another great year in the markets, another, I would say, conventional year. Like where, you know, really positive double digit returns, but some pain along the way. And a lot of reasons to be bullish and a lot of persevering, despite reasons to be bullish, right? Which is the story of, of human progress in general. Um, uh, so we appreciate you. Thank you for taking your time and giving us your attention and listening to us and learning with us. It was a great 2023. We're looking forward to 2024 and to hearing from you about what what topics, what Uh, what things you want to hear us riff on, any changes to the format. We're always open to the feedback and we love hearing from listeners. From us at Brownlee Wealth Management, wish you and your family a happy holidays and all the best in 2024. Signing off, see you next year.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.